Hey, thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us online, too. My name is Rich Doring, and I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Real Life. Thrilled to be beginning 2023 with you and uh, with you online as well. And uh, just a couple of different things. We're going to take an offering in just a few moments. I do have a couple of things I want to share. If you're brand new today, welcome. In your seats, in the back, even at the welcome desk, there's a welcome card. We'd love for you to fill that out and then bring that to the welcome desk. We have a gift for you after the service is over today. There's also prayer cards in your um, seats. There's also next step cards. I want to encourage you to take advantage of those and uh, drop those in the boxes or even in the offering as it goes by today. Uh, we'd love to join you in taking some of those next steps and, uh, and praying for you. We're going to talk about that here uh, before too long, but I uh, want to encourage you to, to jump on board with that. A couple other things, just pay, paying attention to different announcements, different things coming up. This is the beginning of a new year, different emphasis, different focus. There's a lot of different things going on, a lot of moving parts. So make sure you're paying attention to the newsreel you're going to see here in a second. Uh, but uh, a lot of neat things going on. One of those is this. So we've had a Christmas offering in our church, and our goal was $30,000. And uh, basically, those 30, 000, that $30,000 covers three different areas. One is housing opportunities. Housing Opportunities operates in Porter County and provides uh, housing and assistance for those who are housing vulnerable, who are uh, finding themselves in situations where they don't have a place to live and are in circumstances where they need to figure out a system so they can have a different future. And uh, Housing Opportunities does an amazing job in Porter County, and we've partnered with them, and they've opened a new uh, facility here in, in Portage as well. And so there's a lot of good things going on with Housing Opportunities. It gives us an opportunity uh, even to establish actually a community garden coming up here pretty soon at their new location as well. So a lot of neat partnership opportunities. The other one is Free the Girls. Free the Girls is an organization, it's global, but it's based in Chesterton at the Duneland Church. And uh, Free the Girls helps those who are sexually exploited and victims of human trafficking uh, all over the world. And, and it helps those women find uh, employment and establish businesses so that that isn't even an option for them anymore. And uh, it's an amazing, amazing ministry that's making a huge, huge impact globally. We have the ability to partner with them in that as well. And then uh, finally, there's our Palmarcito Partnership. That is the church in Palmarcito, Guatemala that we've formed a partnership with. We were there last summer. There's a lot of neat projects coming up. You're gonna hear more about some of that at the end of February. Damaris Kellogg is gonna be joining us. She's the Compassionate Ministries director down there. We're going to be talking about what it looks like to sponsor 25 to 30 more children through the ministry of this church. And uh, there's an amazing thing that's going on in that community. And we get the privilege of being a part of that. And so I want to encourage you to pray about that. There's a trip coming up. And if you're interested, you can see me for more information. But that's the other entity, so to speak, that's a part of our offering. As of last Sunday, you've given $30,100. So thank you for that. It's amazing. If you've not had the opportunity, you're kind of been holding out or, or whatever the case is, we'll stay still take your money for this. Uh, it'll go to one of those three. But uh, online, you can hit a drop-down menu. Just make sure you choose Christmas offering if you do that or write it on your envelope as you give today. But uh, thank you for doing that. Uh, leading the way in that makes a huge difference. And uh, it speaks volumes about when we say we're hashtag for the region or hashtag for the world actually means that we're actually for those things. And so I want to thank you for your participation in that and your generosity. Speaking of that, the ushers are going to come forward. We're going to receive this morning's tithe and offerings. 
And uh, I know God blesses you as you give as we go into 2023. God has used what you've done uh, in amazing ways, and I just want to thank you. Thank you for that. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today and we glorify you, and I pray that you find among us good stewards, people who, uh, Father, have been careful and uh, good managers of what you've placed into our lives. So, Father, as we give today, I pray that you would use it to build your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And, Father, help us to glorify you in the midst of it. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Well, how many of you are excited for 2023? Okay, it's to stop, stop, stop. That was, uh, as some of my younger peeps would say, cringy. How many of you are excited about 2023? Okay, you may have convinced the people online, but I'm not believing it. So how many of you are excited about 2023? Everybody online right now can vote in the comments on whether you believe that or not. So, now listen, some of you asked me um, if Pastor Travis, who's coming at the end of January as our next gen pastor, is really an actual Packers fan and what my problem is, uh, that we would call another Packers fan. Uh, my statement is we as a church just want to be winners. That's all. Um, you wanna, I don't want to jump on the team. I, I don't know what to tell you at that point, but I'm just kidding. This year... We're not winning, so <laughs> that was a really bad year to make that joke if you're a Packers fan, so I know. It's fighting words, right? Okay. So it is 2023. How many of you remember, and some of you don't because you weren't alive, but how many of you remember uh, the scare at Y2K? Remember? Everybody's computer wasn't going to work. The apocalypse was coming, all kinds of different stuff. People are still eating their MREs, their meals ready to eat from the army and stuff. So the natural question every time the year turns over is what's going to be different like the next year that wasn't the last year. So 2022 came, it, it went. So what's going to be different in 23? What's going to change? And I'm going to assume that most of you are kind of like me, maybe a little bit. Some of you don't want to be like me. That's okay. But uh, I would assume that most everybody has kind of already kind of thought, oh, you know, 2023, I probably should do this or I should probably stop doing that or this or that, and I, I have a list. I'm not going to share my list with you because that way you don't know if I didn't do it. So that's why I'm not going to share my list with you. But I think that sometimes it's good in the life of the church uh, to ask this question as well. What's going to be different next year? And I think what helps is when you reflect on where you've been. So this morning, just briefly, I want to share uh, with you just a recap in a way, a, a reminder of where we've been this last year, and then maybe a glimpse, a little picture of where we're going to be going in this next year as a church. So on the first Sunday of 2022, this exact Sunday last year, we talked about family verses. Uh, sometimes verses, uh, families have different verses that they have, and that's their verse. My family verse is Psalm 1914. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, there's a challenge built in when you have a family verse. You have to live it out, like, or is it really your family verse? So, I mean, like mine is, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. So, if you know that that's my family verse, and I know that that's my family verse, but then you see me in the parking lot, like, screaming at my wife, you'd be like, you probably should have picked a different verse, right? That's not your family verse. Because you're not, maybe Jesus wept. That would have been a better one, okay? But that's clearly not your family verse. So if you're going to say something is your family verse, you got to be kind of careful about what you say it's going to be. And uh, last year what we did was we settled on a family verse of sorts for our church, and it's a prayer actually, that Jesus prays for his disciples. It was on the wall out there. We talked about it throughout the year this last year in our focus on what it means to be one. And you'll see it on the screen, John 17. Verses 20 through 23. 
He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So let me set the stage here. So for context, this verse It is a prayer, and Jesus is praying this uh, following a meal that he's just had. It's his final meal with his friends, with his family. And uh, he knew that the world the disciples were about to go into uh, was going to be hard. Just after this meal, he's going to be praying in a garden. He's going to be arrested, going to be taken away. There'll be a false trial. He'll be killed, crucified, buried. Uh, He knows all of this. He also knows he'll rise again. And uh, he'll be with them for a little while longer than he'll ascend into heaven. But even after the day of Pentecost, he still knows the world that they're going to find themselves in. He knows what that looks like. And it's, it's a world built on division. If you're going to run an empire, you have to divide people. You have to put people into categories if you're going to control people. And he knew that the world they were going to find themselves in was an empire. Not just the Roman Empire, there was a religious empire of the day. And it's not unlike today. I'm learning more and more as I get older. I can't believe I just said that. It is 2023. Uh, Everybody needs a boogeyman. Have you ever noticed this? Like, if I can identify a boogeyman, if I can say, ooh, that person, that's my boogeyman, it kind of gets me off the hook. It takes the attention off of me. I can be a victim a little bit, um, all that kind of different stuff. If I can just make sure that there's a boogeyman to, to take my hit. Okay? And the Romans had this built-in advantage because the religious people were really good at creating boogeymen. Really good at it. The religious people had already divided the people up for the Romans. And so the Romans had it easy. They had it easy. So the religious people had divided up things like the Judeans. The Judeans were the super spiritual ones. They were the super religious ones. They were the ones that made sure everybody understood that there were categories that there were people over here and there were people over here, that we don't associate with these people over here. And then there's those people. We don't even know who those people are, so they must not be good. The Judeans had that job. They set up laws, restrictions, all kinds of different stuff. So you had the Judeans, and they would set up all kinds of restrictions like for the Samaritans, the Samaritans. And so um, Samaritans, poor, half-breeds is what they thought of them. They, they, they didn't even worship the same way. They were kind of goofy and socially and economically they were kind of off to the side so the Judeans looked at them as enemies and then you had like the Galileans now the word Galilee sounds like glee right happy but the Galileans were kind of they were Jews mostly but they were not like Jewish enough they, they just weren't like part of the in club when I was growing up I grew up in a town called Washington Illinois Washington, 10,000 people when I was growing up, little city, town square, you know, everything that you could imagine a Midwest-like town to be, that was it. And then across the river was Peoria, Illinois, but between there was this little kind of village or borough called Sunnyland. Sounds nice, right? Sunnyland, okay. You got Washington, Sunnyland, and Peoria, East Peoria and Peoria. Sunnyland was incorporated into Washington, so 
It was a part of Washington. If you addressed the envelope Washington, but you lived in Sunnyland, you'd still get your mail and all that kind of stuff. So it was a part of Washington, but it was just kind of this appendage. I grew up the first few years of my life in Sunnyland, and everybody in the area affectionately called Sunnyland scummy land. That's, that's nice, right? So I was from scummy land. Scummy land even had its own school district, D50. We were District 52. They were D50, and the chant was D50, D50 go home when we were all in sports. I could do the, no, I could do the cheer, no, okay. D50 go home, because you were from scummy land, and scummy land is almost like Nazareth. It was like, can anything good come from scummy land? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And that was just kind of the idea. That was the Galilee, in a way, of the time. Now, hopefully something good comes from scummy land. I, got, I came to Christ through the sunny land, Church of the Nazarene. So there's good things that happen in scummy land, but you call it scummy land. That was Galilee. These people socially were off. Politically, they're off. Uh, ethnically, they're off. And they're just from the wrong side of the tracks. And then... Then you had the people from Decapolis. Okay, they were the Greeks. We just don't go there. They're, they're the freaky-deaky people. They're the ones that are like, we don't even know what they do. We don't want to know what they do. Okay, so we don't, those aren't our people. So already the religious crowd had divided up people very easily for the Romans to come in and set up camp. So they set up camp. So they're divided religiously, politically, Ethnically, racially, socially, economically, they're all divided. And so then you have Jesus, who in the midst of all of this, this is Jesus, a savior who talked about the last, being first, being a servant of all. This is what Jesus talked about. He talked about denying self. He talked about bringing healing to the hurting, about caring for the poor, about um, elevating those that were on the margins, lifting them up, Freeing the oppressed. So what does Jesus do in the midst of this world that this, these disciples are going to find themselves in? He prays. He prays. Jesus didn't come to build nations. We talked about this last year. He came to build tables. He built community. He built a community. Uh, a community of foot washers and peacemakers. It's a community of cheek turners. It's a community of people who choose to love their enemies and pray for the people that persecute them. These are subversive people. It's a subversive community that doesn't embody the division of the world that it finds itself in. Back then, or today, the world that we find ourselves in, so Jesus prays, he says, I've, I've given them the glory, God, that you've given me, that they might be one as we are one, I in them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What does he pray? He prays that they would be one. That they would be one. That's when the world will know. Last year we settled on this truth. If you and I, if we resort to the pattern of this world, which is division, if the church of Jesus Christ resorts to the pattern of this world, which is division, or worse, adds to the division that exists in our world, we will hinder people from knowing Jesus. Fact. 
We will hinder people from knowing Jesus if we are not one. And in the absence of that oneness, in the absence of that unity, which is glaring to an onlooking world, it's glaring. The absence of that oneness, why in the world would anybody want what we say we have? If it doesn't work, if it doesn't make a difference in the words of our mouths, in the meditations of our hearts, in the way we interact with other people, or when we add to the division, why would they want it? Why would they want what we say we have? And so this last year, we looked at what it means to be a church that works its love for one another out. How have you done? How have you done in working out your love for one another? You're the church. I'm the church. How have we done in working our love out for one another? It's a love that crosses man-made barriers. It's a unity that crosses man-made barriers to show love, to show mercy and humility and grace to one another. It's a church that looks like it's really, really quick to forgive, to embrace, to love, to confess when confession needs to happen. It's a church that's not confined by earthbound loyalties, but it's freed to fulfill an agenda that goes beyond the pattern of this world. If you claim a faith in Jesus Christ, you are citizens of a different kingdom. Citizens of a different kingdom. So what kind of a church are we? Living as one in such a way that maybe an onlooking world would look at us and say, why are they like that? In a good way. (laughs) Why are they so different? Why are they doing what they're doing? So last year, what basically we did was we set the table. We started the year looking at what real unity looks like from Ephesians chapter 4. If you've not spent any time recently in the book of Ephesians, I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, It's one of my favorite letters, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. The book of Ephesians is incredible. Ephesians chapter 4 gives you this full, rich picture of the body of Christ and what true oneness and unity looks like. We spent last January dissecting that and looking at what, is, what are the implications of that for us. As the body of Christ, as real-life community church, what does it look like to embody that unity, to really live it out and own that as ours? That's who we are. I want to encourage you to read Ephesians chapter 4. Then, after talking about unity, which is fun, right? Unity is one of those words that is so whitewashed now that it almost means nothing when people throw it out. But, but it's really important. It's really important. So we talked about unity in January, and then in February we tested it. So we talked about, let's talk about some of the things that divide us. In fact, what we did was we talked about how to talk about the things that divide us. And so the first week in February we talked about politics. The second week we talked about immigration. Third week, We talked about race. In the fourth week, we talked about human sexuality. These are topics that are divisive issues in our world and in our churches, right? And so we talk not just about those things, but how do you talk about those things? Remembering that the very people that you're having a conversation with are people that are created in the image of God. These are God-image-bearing people. How do we have those conversations when we're going to have differences? And you might be thinking, maybe the goal is to not have differences, Listen, my job description is big enough. 
I can't figure out how to get everybody on the same page politically. If you can figure that one out, that's okay. But are we safe to assume that everybody in this room, I mean, God does miracles. Okay, we get this. Do we think that every single person in this room is always going to agree 100% politically? And should that be my goal, is to get us to all agree politically? No, we are going to have differences. People in this room and online right now are going to have differences politically. We're going to disagree about things when it comes to race. We're going to disagree about all kinds of little things. The bigger issue is how do we do it? Number one rule is you don't get to be a punk. <laughs> you don't get to be a jerk. Maybe you're thinking I'm being a jerk right now. I don't, I don't know. But we don't get to act that way. That's not how we function. We're going to have differences. The question is how do we do that? And then by week five, I was done. Okay, we're not talking about it anymore. <laughs> we were thankfully ready for Lent. And so we did the same thing, all of us, for 40 days. 140, all the way through Lent, all the way up until Easter. Easter came and went, and then we did a dive into the book of Revelation. We did a series not on Revelation, but from Revelation, in regards to this invitation that God is giving us into one vision, this new creation that God is bringing about, and what it looks like for us to accept that invitation into what God is doing. It's an amazing, amazing opportunity. And then we spent all summer long traversing through different one another statements in the New Testament. Jesus said some, uh, the Apostle Paul, others said some, but what does it look like for us to love one another, to encourage one another? What does it look like for us to bear one another's burdens? What does it look like for us to restore one another? How about forgive one another? What do those things look like to forgive one another? And then we ended the summer with one in generosity. So we, we looked at this church in Macedonia back in Paul's day that was so ridiculous. They, they didn't have anything. They were literally, they weren't just, didn't have poverty, they were below poverty. But yet when they heard about somebody in need, they begged for the opportunity to give. And the question for us then was, why? Why are they doing this? It's because they were united in their one desire to fulfill the mission of Jesus, to do whatever God desired for them to do. And what did it look like for us to be one in generosity when it came to us as the body of Christ? And then we looked at one creed. All the things in the world that could divide us, we looked at these central statements of our faith, these core statements of our faith that bring us to center, that help us to understand that there's so much more that unites us with brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and divides us. And sometimes we focus on some very non-essential things. What are these essential things that we need to focus on that bring us together as the body of Christ? And then we finish it out with Advent, and so now here we are. Here we are. So let me ask you, is it important for us to be unified? Yeah, it's really, really important. And again, like I said, the word unity or being unified is really kind of a whitewashed word now. If you're in the education system or if you're in other systems of, of government or business and different things, we talk about unity. There needs to be unity. And generally the idea that people think about when they think of unity is nobody's going to disagree, right? We're all going to think the same thing, believe the same thing, say the same thing, recite the same thing. And how many of you think that that happens? Okay. But that's because this idea of unity is almost like a pie-in-the-sky kind of a thing that takes place. And so it tends to get minimized, but for us in the body of Christ, it's just not an option. Unity is essential. 
Unity is what Jesus prayed for us, for his disciples. So unity is really, really important. But here's the deal. It's a choice. Unity is a choice. It's a choice also that's associated with certain things like sacrifice. If you're going to be unified with others, there's certain things that you have to sacrifice. There's certain biases or certain things that you might want to say that you don't say, say for the sake of unity. I'm not talking about like these central core things like we saw in the Apostles' Creed, but I, I was talking about just our personal biasness or our personal issues that are going on. There are certain things that we have to do in order to preserve the unity, as Paul says. There's a sacrifice, there's a cost to all of it. You've got to be planted long enough in a situation to not be detached from the family of God because of a change or because of strained relationships or because of disagreements or choices of style or preference or, or anything else. Your roots have to go down deep enough. You have to push roots down deep and far as a church and as parts of the body of Christ. So us as a church need to go deep, but us as individual believers also need to go deep. We need to push our roots deep. So when challenges come, disagreements arise, preferences shift, when it gets hard, when a storm comes, it's really easy, particularly if you've not sent your roots down deep or wide, it's really easy to uproot in those moments. Searching, maybe chasing something that might promise a better experience or, or better whatever, only to uproot again because you don't want to put your roots too deep because you want to keep your options open. If something better comes along, you can pull those roots up easily and put your roots over here until this doesn't do it for you either, or till that change gets made, or that personality changes, or that platform goes empty, or whatever. And you can pull up your roots and stick them over here for a while. Instead, what does it look like to make a conscious decision to put your roots down? To drive them deep. On July 2nd, 2019, uh, my wife and I, our family, still lived in Racine, Wisconsin. And... Um, it was July 2nd, 2019. It started sprinkling. It was the afternoon. Our boys were at a movie, and uh, one of their cars was sitting in the, in the front in the street, and it started sprinkling. So Shelly went out to roll the windows up, and I, went, I was upstairs shutting windows. By the time I made it to the front door, I couldn't see the car anymore. The wind was blowing so hard, and the rain was pouring down and blowing so hard, I couldn't even see the car. I just knew my wife was in it. And so... I run outside, I'm getting soaking wet, and before you knew it, it was done. And literally the sun came out. And there was my wife in this car. I'm soaking wet. She's soaking wet because she ran and jumped into the car. She gets out, and we're looking at the aftermath. And it was absolutely amazing. So it's the most bizarre weather phenomenon I've ever been a part of. It's called a microburst. And, and basically what it is, is all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there was a four by eight block area that was affected. If you went two streets over, it was like nothing happened. It was so weird. We lived four blocks from Lake Michigan, which sounds really swanky. It wasn't, it was just normal neighborhood. Um, but we lived four blocks in for Lake Michigan and it was those four blocks and eight blocks wide. And it was absolute devastation. Trees were down in the roads, branches had fallen on cars, we spent the rest of the day with our neighbors, because we didn't have any electricity, 
cutting branches and cutting trees and, and all this kind of other different stuff. It was incredible, absolutely incredible, the devastation in that little tiny area. The sadder devastation to me, though, was Main Street. So in Wisconsin, in, in, on, in Racine, Wisconsin, on Main Street, they had what I would call generational oaks. So you had these oak trees that were planted in a line along Main Street. It was beautiful in the fall when the leaves would change and everything. We're talking about oak trees that were this big around. So they've been planted a long, long time ago. And the sad thing, and you'll see pictures here on the screen, um, you can just kind of see. They were just, they would just fall. And they were planted, I don't think originally there was issues, but I, when they were initially planted, but, but the problem with these trees, as great and as grand and as big and as, as permanent even as they looked, it didn't matter because at some point their roots hit a sidewalk or their roots hit a curb or their roots hit a driveway or it hit the street. And so their roots were shallow and narrow. Their roots never went deep and they never went far. And so when the storm came, when the wind would come up, all of a sudden, and in these microbursts, basically it was 30 seconds of 100 mile per hour wind bursts. And then it was over in the sun. And so all of a sudden, all of these stately, permanent type trees that lined Main Street were down. Not all of them, but most of them were down. And it never looked the same. They weren't fully rooted. And this was the problem that the Apostle Paul struggled with. And this is why he wrote to the Colossian church, another great letter. So in the Colossian church, uh, they had started well. They were unified in their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. But by the time that Paul wrote to them, we're going to look at the verse here in a second. By the Paul, time that Paul had written to them, uh, there was a huge concern, a huge one. Um, the letter to the Colossians is actually a warning. And it's a warning to the believers not to slip into what I would call a very self-focused faith, a very self-promoting, self-centered type of a faith. And the problem that was going on in that community at that time was there were self-proclaimed prophets and self-proclaimed teachers that were exhibiting kind of a, a super piety. In other words, they're the ones that, I mean, you're hearing the word of God, but we really claim to know the word of God. God has given me a word. And if you really wanted to be in on what God was doing and really in on what God was saying, then you needed to go and hear the visions of these specific teachers, these specific self-promoting prophets that were coming by. And so all of a sudden, these teachers and these prophets as well, what they would do is they would overemphasize certain laws and certain practices of the faith so that they would create fear in you. Like if you didn't do enough, then you were going to miss out on what God was doing in that moment. Or if you did this and this and this, that was a big no-no. You had to be really, really careful. And so they would create this fear in people, which never ends well. It just never ends well when you do things based on fear. But they would create a fear in people, create a boogeyman. Okay, One day I'm going to write a book about, it's going to be the boogeyman book. The boogie book. Okay, so you're welcome. But they would create a fear, okay? They would create this issue. And then isn't it great when you're able to create a fear for people and then you begin to wave the banner as the answer to that fear? I have the answer. You just have to come to me. Sounds great, doesn't it? 
There were all of these people, and Paul is writing to them with a warning. A warning. And we see him flesh some of it out in Colossians 2, 6 through 8. You'll see it on the screen. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. In other words, you're kind of getting consumed with some things that are over here, but you have, you have a faith in the rock of Jesus Christ. You, you've planted your faith on the immovable rock of Jesus. Root yourself there. Grab it. Over the course of the next year, we're going to examine what it looks like for us as a church and as individuals to become rooted. R-O-O-T-E-D, rooted. Now, that may not get you super excited, which is okay because that's not my job description. My job is not to get you super excited. My job is to help you encounter God and then embrace what it looks like to be a part of a community of believers to embody the mission of Jesus Christ in the world that we live in, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your school, where you work. That's my job. My job, in a nutshell, is to make disciples, to make disciples. And while I'm sure that, you know, maybe one day he'll get it, that's not how you get people to come to church, I'm not interested in tricking people to come to church. Listen, the scorecard has changed, and I need you to hear what I'm saying. The scorecard has changed. As a pastor, I can't not tell you this. The scorecard has changed for the church in the United States of America. Large gatherings and moving services are important. They're great. I'm a fan of having incredible services together, incredible worship. But if those do not translate into deep transformational lives, transformed lives through Jesus Christ, the scorecard doesn't exist. We don't do one at the expense of another. If success is an ability to draw a crowd, if success is the ability to elicit some kind of an emotional response, we will be a mile wide and an inch deep. It's just a fact. And when the personalities change, when programs shift, when uncomfortable but necessary changes and decisions are made, it becomes exceptionally easy in that moment to either be blown over, to wipe your hands of it, or you just pick up your roots and move somewhere else. Instead, maybe the metric of success is returning to what it's always been since Jesus called people to be his followers making disciples and teaching them to obey everything that he commanded. It's amazing to me that when you begin to do that, may people begin to get a hold of what God really wants in their lives. They can't be quiet about it. They tend to share it with others. And other people start asking why. And they want to come and see and change too. Making disciples. So as one, we go deep together. 
that we get rooted together. So this year, we're going to do this hand in hand. We're going to learn what it means to be rooted. We're going to put ourselves in a position so the Spirit of God can take us deeper. That's what we are going to do. Uh, It's going to be reflected in the focus of the preaching. There's going to be special opportunities throughout the year as well. We will do some different things. But like last year, it's no different. For every single person in this room, and if you're online too, you will get out of this what you put into it. You will get out of this what you put into it. We're going to start by spending this month laying a foundation. So next week, the week after, and the week after that, all throughout January, uh, we're going to be talking about what does it mean to be rooted. I mean, what, what, what does Scripture tell us about the rootedness issue that we have, and how, and how do you go about doing that? Uh, what, is, what does Jesus tell us about being rooted? And then on the 29th, just so you know, mark your calendars, the Proclamation Gospel Choir from Olivet's going to be here. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> There's going to be like 50 to 100 voices on this platform, and they rock. It's just going to be fun, so make sure you invite some people to that. But those other weeks in January, we're going to be talking about what does it mean to be rooted. But then when, when February hits, we're going to get real practical. So when February hits, we're going to talk about what does it mean for us as the body of Christ and for individual believers for us to be rooted in prayer. Rooted in prayer. So I've been your pastor this month for two years. For two years. And when I first came here, I very intentionally did something. I gave the church board a survey. I gave different leaders in our church a survey. And I very specifically gave our church staff a survey. And that survey asked a very simple question. What are our core values as a church? If you were to step back and take a look, what do you think this church would say, these are the most important things? This is who we are. What are our core values? And from a list of like 50, they chose eight. The very first one was biblical preaching and teaching. That's, that's our highest value is what came to the top. Biblical preaching and teaching. That's cool. Number two, prayer. We, your staff, your leaders, your board, said prayer was the second most important thing that this church does and believes in and says this is who we are. So here's the challenge. Sometimes when we say we have, this is a value, um, it's a value because it's something that we're doing. It's, It's something that's just an integrated part of our life and this is so important that we can't not do it. Then sometimes we say something is a value because it's something we aspire to. It's an aspirational value. Um, Until you're actually living something out and doing it, it's aspirational. And so we need to transition as a church from prayer being an add-on to stuff that we do to instead being something that we do first. We pray first. So everybody say pray first. That's not the last time you're going to hear me say that. We need to transition to where prayer comes first. I'm glad that you're excited about biblical preaching and teaching. Prayer comes first. It needs to come first in who we are and how we function as a church. It needs to become central to who we are. So in February, we're going to look at what it means to be rooted in prayer. We're also going to launch into 21 days of prayer. There's a devotional. This is what happens when nothing else happens between Christmas and New Year's, I write things and do stuff. I get a lot done. So it's already done. 
okay? Uh, 21 days of prayer from February 1, and we're going to end on February 21st, obviously, the day before Ash Wednesday. So we're all going to come in here on Ash Wednesday and culminate that as we launch into the next weeks leading up to Easter. Now, being rooted in prayer is just the beginning. We're going to talk as we move into Easter about being rooted in mission. And what's going to take place is brand new. Uh, You're going to hear a lot of new information in those weeks. But what does it look like for us truly to not just say that we do things, but actually do the things? Actually live out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We're going to be rooted in mission after that. We're going to be revealing a vision for discipleship for real life. And following Easter, there's going to be more. Um, I'm trying to show reserve. I generally way over plan. And so I'm trying to be nice (laughs) and not do that to myself anymore. But I do know that we're going to talk about what does it mean to be rooted in worship? What is worship? What does it mean for us to be rooted in worship? What does it mean for us to be rooted in community? To be rooted in the word of God and more. And as we close, can I just share why I think this is really important? The first is this, church is not an event. And I know, I know, I know, I know that we know this. I do. I know that we know that this building is not a church. This building is not the church. You are. So where's the church tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock? It's wherever you are. What we are doing in here right now is we're actually coming to prepare together to be the church as we leave this place. We're here to be reminded of what it means to be the church. And then we leave this place and be the church. This is just a building. I mean, it's a great building. Don't get me wrong. I'm excited about being here with you this morning. But we don't go to church. We are the church. And I know it feels like semantics, but how easily it is to view church as something that we go to, and if we see it as something that we go to, then it's something that's done over here, and I'm detached from it over here. It's, it's, it's something other than. Instead, we've got to transition to a place where we understand that this is not an event. If it were an event, we've got to trick people to come back next week. We've got to make sure the event is hot enough so that people will be like, I don't want to mix next, I don't want to miss next week. If that's what it takes to get people to come, I think that God is a whole lot bigger than that. I believe that the Spirit of God moves in people's hearts and creates a hunger and a thirst and a desire and a drive that will cause them to be hungry for something more. And it's not contingent upon other things. This is not an event. This is a place for the church to gather, understand who we are, and then go be who we are with each other, and the rest of the world. That's what this is. Which means, number two, discipleship is not an experience. Discipleship is not an experience. I believe that there are important experiences in people's discipleship journey. I do. I think there are these divine moments. I've had them in my own life where God has intersected and emotionally, physically, mentally, I've had a moment of just extreme encounter with God. And it's changed me radically. But those moments have been catalysts for the long obedience in the same direction where I've put my roots down and begin to understand now what does it mean to live out the experience I just had. 
And I understand that, I, again, it feels like I'm messing with semantics, but this is why I think this is important for us. You can go home right now and get on YouTube and experience the most amazing worship. You can go on YouTube, and I guarantee you hear a message a thousand times better than the one I just preached. You can do all of that if we're gathering experiences and thinking that that's what creates disciples. That is not what creates disciples. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, go. I think sometimes we forget that becoming a disciple means being one. It means putting feet to what it means to be a disciple, not collecting just experiences and saying that is what's turning me into a disciple, but actually being the experience, <laughs> being the living embodiment of, of Jesus to the world around you. Discipleship isn't an experience. It's a life lived out in obedience to Jesus. He said, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded them. Discipleship is living. It's going. It's being. And over the course of the next year, we're going to drive some roots kind of deep. And I hope that's okay. I hope that's all right. If it's not, I mean, I can change plans and stuff, but I'm already halfway done here with the year, so. But I think that this is where God has us right now as a church, going deep, going wide. Because I don't know if you noticed, the world is getting harder. <laughs> it feels like the world is getting darker. And we as a church, and any church for that matter, have this light um, and when we when we allow that light to grow dim because of other loyalties because of other things because we're not we're not willing to deny self long enough to allow our roots to go deep and to deal with the tough conversations with each other and live out life with each other and do those hard things um, our world does not see that light we have, these, we have this incredible, the darker the dark is, the brighter the, the light. And, and we have this incredible opportunity as the body of Christ to be the light in the world around us. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You don't hide your light under a lampstand. You, you, you shine it for the world to see. We have this opportunity. But it doesn't happen. Uh, and, and I know I'm speaking from a sore spot in my own life, but... Um, when I came to faith in Christ in 1992, within one year, I was on a college campus studying to be a pastor. And the problem with that is nobody ever taught me how to pray. Nobody ever taught me how to look at Scripture, not to discern it for everybody else, but to discern it for myself and allow God to use it to change me. Instead, I was taken to school and taught how to produce. Here's your scorecard, Rich. Start racking up the points. Fill the pews, build the building, make the excitement. But all the while, I was doing that as an empty vessel. I wasn't rooted. And so I've paid the price for 30 years of catching up in my own personal discipleship. And here's what I know. It only happens for me when I go deep, when I allow myself to stop long enough to drive the roots deep, and to let them spread wide. Because there have been hits that I've taken, and there's hits that you've taken. There's hits that we will take 
and the wind's going to come and the storm's going to blow or something's going to happen that you don't like or that I don't like. The question is, are we going to stick this thing out? Are we going to stick this thing out? I want to tell you I'm proud of you. You're here today. (laughs) These feel like spankings all the time. Wouldn't you just love to grow up in my house? I mean, it's just exciting. What do you think? I got a kid over there stone-faced. I'm just kidding. No, I'm so proud of you for being here. I'm so proud of you. I love you. I'm so excited to be your pastor because I feel like we're at a place as a church where the sky is the limit, where we can be exactly what God desires for us to be. Not that we couldn't before, but we're just at this place, this, and maybe it's this the new year and I'm getting all romantic in my own brain or whatever, but, but I'm excited. I'm excited about what God wants to do, what God is doing in the lives of people. We've seen people baptized this last year. I've been so excited to see people become members of the church, walk through the doors of the church for the first time, become members, and now are serving in, in significant positions in the life of our church. That doesn't happen by accident. This happens intentionally. And it happens intentionally when we do things that drive us deep. And so thanks for joining me on this journey. I appreciate it. I'm, you're stuck with me. I told you this last week. We bought a house. We close on Wednesday. It's like two and a half weeks from offer to close, which and Christmas and New Year's in the middle of it. So if anybody helps to move, that would be, be great. But no. Uh, you're stuck, so I'm, I'm here. I'm, 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 I'm into this. I hope you are too. I hope you are too. Would you stand? Father, your grace is sufficient to meet us everywhere we are, and your grace also goes before us. We talked about that last fall. There's this provenient grace, this grace, Father, that draws us. And Father, I know that I know that you're drawing us deeper right now as a body of Christ. Generally speaking, you're going to draw us deep because there are things that you need to do. There are things that you want to do through a body of Christ that is wholly submitted to you. So today, I pray that we would submit ourselves to you, to your pruning, to your growth, to your fertilization, to all of it. Everything, Father, that would cause us to go deep. Go deep with you and deep with each other. And Father, as this year unfolds, help us as we continue to seek to encounter you and, and Father, be a part of what it is that you desire for us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. God bless you.